0: I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 22 through 33 as we once again go over these verses on the subject of marriage. Now, you'll remember last week we discussed the incredible importance, the amazing importance, I should say, of of marriage. And in particular, I stressed how important... It was uh, that this mystery is a guide to us in understanding our relationship to Christ, how the relationship between man and wife is the only thing that comes close to being able to analogize the relationship between Christ and the church and why the world, therefore the flesh and the devil, are so zealous to destroy the institution of marriage, especially uh, when it is the place where the covenant family is supposed to be uh, created, and the next generation of Christians are supposed to be raised, therefore they are gunning to destroy marriage, and unfortunately have done a terrible uh, work against it in the, in the past Now, uh, as I preach on this subject, last week, I said uh, it 's not going to be an exegetical marvel i 'm talking about the uh, uh, the importance of marriage and putting its place in, in our society today and indeed within the Christian sphere in all ages. That does not mean that this will be an exegetical marvel, incidentally. Uh, It just means that uh, it's going to be more dealing with the text itself. Um, So before we get down to uh, the word, let's go to the Lord who gave it to us, and let's ask for his help. God, our gracious Father, I pray now, Lord, that you would give us attention to your word. Lord, it is so easy to be distracted by the things that flit through our minds. And we know the world, the flesh, and the devil hate it, absolutely detest it when your word is being preached. They want us to ignore it, uh, to be irritated by it, to uh, think on anything else. But I pray, Lord, that you would thwart all of them and that we would instead, we would listen to your voice and we would hear it and we would learn about marriage, either as something we are experiencing or something we hope to experience or something we've experienced in the past. Lord, I pray that it would be something that we would know more about. And most importantly, I pray it would help us to understand our relationship to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Now, as I said, um, there are, when you preach on marriage and you, you talk about uh, the verses that particularly deal with uh, submission, for instance, there is a tendency, uh, unfortunately, to come at them in the way that I might uh, be struck. If somebody said to me, we're going to watch The View, and I want you to have an open mind as we do so, um, I seriously doubt that that would ever ever happen and I find that sometimes when marriage is being spoken of that's exactly what happens. Uh, we are not really listening to the word of God because we have preconceived notions about what marriage should not be or perhaps we have experienced a bad marriage or seen bad marriages and therefore we come to the conclusion that marriage as a biblical institution is a bad idea, that is not the case. Um, It should be, though, that as we are listening to Paul preaching on this subject, or teaching us about this subject, that we are listening to God's Word of instruction on this. So we may not like it, but nonetheless, it is God's Word and it is true. So I pray that you would have, (laughs) as much as you possibly can, your shields down and your ability to uh, absorb these things. Now, one of the things that I would put before you, uh, before we um, go ahead and read these verses, is that you would think of marriage as a religious institution, as we're reading through this, and not merely an institution uh, that has been uh, given as a contract or a partnership or something like that. So let's go ahead and read the Word of God now. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As I said, I I hope that you would think of marriage as a religious institution. I just ask, do you think of marriage as a religious institution? Do you see it as an act of devotion? Something that as we enter into, we are not merely going through one of the traditional uh, parts of life, uh, kind of like a Fourth of July uh, parade or something like that, but rather we're entering into something that is given to us by God, and that as we uh, enter into marriage, we are doing so as an act of piety, an act of worship, an act of worship not of the person obviously, hopefully that we married, but an act of worship to God, that we are in our marriage seeking to please the Lord who gave us marriage in the garden. Marriage, uh, the way that Paul has spelled it out here, and the way it is spelled out for us in scripture, we looked at some of the other scriptures that deal with it, particularly Genesis, where it was given in the garden. It is not a contract. It is not a partnership. It is not a romance novel. It is none of those things. It is something special. It is something unique. It is something that's meant to teach us, that's meant to help us, and is meant to be, obviously, the foundational standing stone, the ground upon which we build the church. The Christian church is founded not on individuals, autonomous individuals, sometimes gathering together once a week, but it's founded on families. It always has been. Now, I hate the idea of using keys to anything, you know, the, uh, the 12 keys to financial independence or something like that, you know, because it, it makes it sound like that if you have these things, you've got all of it, uh, or it'll be easy, you put the key in the lock, you turn it, boom, it opens and we're done. So I'm going to give you two keys to marriage, you'll get them, and then boom, your marriage will be perfect forever. That's not the case. I'm sorry, not in a, uh, a fallen world. So I don't mean to oversimplify it, but there are two great keys that are given here that are absolutely foundational, absolutely critical to having a Christian marriage. And those two keys are the idea of respect and love. The idea that the wife must submit and reverence her husband, that is respect him, uh, as the church is to submit to Christ. And then also the second key being that the husband must love his wife as Christ loves the church. Now, Christ in marriage is the ultimate source an object of our respect and love in both. He is the source and the object. He is the one who makes it possible for us to love another sinner for our entire lives. He is the one that makes it possible for us to respect another sinner for the rest of our lives. And he actually should be the ultimate object of our love and our respect because, well, it is not always possible, let us face it, to love and respect other people because they are sinners like us, It is always, or it should for the Christian who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within his heart or her heart, it should always be possible for us to love and respect Christ, and therefore to love and respect the person that God has given to us and has made one flesh with us. Now, Christ, therefore, is going to be the object in marriage. Building his kingdom should be the objective in our families, It is when we make our own happiness or our own agenda or building our particular kingdom, the object in our marriage, that we immediately begin to run into problems. And ultimately, we are misunderstanding the purpose of marriage. Now, one of the things that I need to say, um, I notice I started in verse 22. In, In the modern world, it is very common to start instead of 22 with verse 21, which actually belongs uh, more to the last paragraph but is organically connected to this one. 21 obviously is submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now that clause, it should be obvious to you, uh, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God, that that is part of the prior paragraph. But a lot of people will say, no, 21, so we need to submit to one another, so the command uh, that wives are given to submit to their husbands is immediately almost negated, pushed away by the idea that, well, it's just a mutual submission that we're talking about, and let's move on, I don't want to deal with submit any more than that. To do that is to n- not understand the entire relationship structure within the following passage. And it's also, exegetically, it's, it's fallacious And it should, as a teaching methodology, uh, it should strike you as, as utterly out of keeping with what Paul is saying, not just in those verses on marriage that we read, but in the entire section. He deals with the structures, the hierarchical structures that exist within the family. He's going to talk about the relationship of husbands and wives. Then he's going to talk about the relationship between parents and children. And then he's going to talk about the relationship between masters and servants. These are all hierarchical relationships. So to talk as though we can immediately begin by pushing away the issue of submission and reverence and respect is the same as, as if we invited you know privates to join the army and then we talked to them about all the reasons they shouldn't have to submit to the people above them. Or that we raise children saying to, themsel- to saying to them, you are autonomous, you are able to make all of your decisions by yourself, and you don't have to respect and obey your parents. Now, most Christians understand as the world perhaps doesn't any longer, that that is to encourage anarchy and absolute failure in a family structure. There has to be submission within that structure. We have to submit. I have to submit to the authorities that are above me. I have to submit on a regular basis to the civil magistrate. The policeman walks up to my window. The last thing I should be saying to him when he says you were going 76 in a 55 zone is, that's what you think! You're not the boss of me. Goodbye. (laughs) You know, it's obviously that would be foolish. It would be foolish because not only would it get me into a lot of trouble, but it's uh, utterly ignore the relationship, the authority that has been endowed upon that man by the civil magistrate. He is, in essence, uh, the civil magistrate to me, and therefore I must listen to him, even if I disagree. He still has that authority. So... In verse 21, we need to understand that the apostle is enjoining, yes, he wants us to submit to one another. And that's a frequent command within uh, scripture, but it's always within the hierarchical relationship. So, for instance, in uh, 1 Peter 5.5, likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another within those structures. We have to be a people who are willing to submit, and that's so hard for us. Because we have been, since the garden, rebels. Whenever we're in an authority relationship, even when the authority is God Almighty himself, our tendency, our fallen tendency, is to say, no, I won't, I know better. Or to undermine that authority, or worse yet, as the devil did, to seek that authority themselves. And then when we do that, And we grab to ourselves that authority. Like Zimri, for instance, this morning, grabbed the authority of the kingship to himself, something that he didn't have, was not ready for, was not qualified for. And what did it lead to? It led to, ultimately, his death, his undoing. Zimri would not have been dead if he hadn't tried to grab authority that didn't belong to him and that God... Well, actually, this is thousands of years ago. Of course, Zimri would be dead, but he wouldn't have died in that circumstance. And so often, when we try to take authority that is not ours. When we try to break apart all the hierarchies that God has, has given us, when we try to break the chains, so to speak, what happens ultimately is we make ourselves miserable. I've actually spoken to people online, okay, who will acknowledge this, that when they move out of the traditional hierarchies, it doesn't work, it breaks down and they're miserable, but they're like, that's better. That's honestly better. I had uh, one woman said to me, "Well, ignorance is bliss. That's why you're, you Christians are happier, and why your marriages last longer, and why you actually have more sex. You know, because you're all ignorant. You're not. You don't. You know. You don't understand the way that. I, I don't think. I don't think if there is a God, madam, that He really designed us to, to be miserable uh, and rebellious and exercising our autonomy in ways that are self-destructive." And that's, that's simply the fact, brothers and sisters, if we will do it God's way, ultimately we will have to submit. We will have to take Christ's yoke upon ourselves, but ultimately we will be happier. And our society will work better. Our families certainly will work better. Our marriages will work better. So there is a mutual submission idea, yes, that is implicit within Christianity, and we should all be seeking to humble ourselves. Christ, the example, of course, that he set for us in washing the feet of his apostles showed that amazing sub- willingness to to humble himself, to take on the duties of the lowest servant when need be. Just as George Washington, for instance, there's that wonderful story of how he rode up to uh, a party that was supposed to be building a bridge, and there was a, uh, a lieutenant who was basically standing there and, and trying to push the men to, uh, to, to get the bridge done and, and because he wasn't leading by example, but was lording it over them, they were doing a terrible job. Apparently, Washington rode up, took off his coat, and began to work with the men building the bridge. Um, and when they were done, uh, he said, young man, if you ever have need of, of uh, someone to help you build a bridge, just call for General Washington again. The lieutenant was appalled. He had no idea that the commander-in-chief had been helping him uh, to complete his task. But, of course, Washington was showing an example of servant leadership there. Humble yourself, lead from the front, and don't push from the back. Don't be a tyrant, but at the same time, exercise that kind of regular and good and uh, properly grounded authority. Now, uh, no less (laughs) authority um, uh, on the subject of submission, Uh, Then Tim Keller, not somebody I would normally turn to on this subject, actually wrote something very good in his book on uh, the meaning of marriage. He said, for example, verse 21 not only introduces the section on husbands and wives, but also the section on the relationship of parents and children. It is clear that parents are not to submit to children in the same way that children submit to their parents. The point here is that we should not use verse 21 to flatten the distinctions between the duties of wives and husbands, arguing that they are identical. Husbands do not submit to their wives in exactly the same way as wives submit to their husbands. And Hodge points out, uh, he says, either the fear of Christ, at whose bar we are to stand in judgment, should constrain us to this mutual subjection, or that the duty should be religiously performed. The motive should be reverence for Christ, a regard for his will, and for his glory. It is in this way all social duties, even the most humiliating, are raised into the sphere of religion and rendered consistent with the highest elevation and liberty. One of the things that happens is if we think, if we have low thoughts of ourselves and high thoughts of Christ, then submitting in our various stations humbling ourselves in order to do things will come easily to us. But if we have low views of Christ, high views of ourselves, and we're constantly exalting ourselves, we won't be able to submit to anybody. And we will constantly be running head to head in every relationship uh, where we enter into. Now, what is the, the motive then for wives to submit to their husbands? Well, they need to submit to their husbands in regard to the Lord. All right, It's not, I'm submitting because I am a lower form of creature uh, than my husband. I am submitting out of reverence to the Lord. One of the uh, historical examples, it can be taken too far, it has been taken too far, but a, nonetheless a good uh, example of this kind of submission amongst equals is given in the economic trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal, co-equal members of the Godhead, and yet The Son, in the act of redemption, voluntarily submitted to the Father, and the Holy Spirit, in redeeming us, voluntarily submits to the Son and the Father. And if that had not happened, if that submission did not take place, you and I would not be saved. That's an essential truth. Now, the ground of the submission that we are being taught in this is that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. There's an analogy being given there. All right? Now, the husband is not Christ himself. He does not have the same authority as Christ. And although he may think he's God on occasion, that is not the case. It should not be uh, that we misunderstand that. And that subjection also, note the all things, in all things, that occurs. In verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Sorry, verse uh, 40, uh, 23, rather. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. In everything. Uh, so the subjection that's being spoken of there is not confined to any one sphere, but it extends to all. Um, husbands are called upon in the same way in the next few verses. To do something that is equally difficult for their nature, that is to love their wives and to love them sacrificially as Christ loved the church. The measure of love is seen in Christ's incredible love for the church, for whose redemption, we need to remember, he was willing not only to die, but to suffer more than any other has ever suffered. He was willing to suffer the pains of hell in their place. The wrath of the Father poured out upon them. This is love beyond understanding, especially when we consider that Christ did not do this for friends or to people who were yet his bride at that point in time, but for enemies and people who were fighting against him. So the ground of that love is that he has done this, that the wife might be, flesh of her husband's flesh, bone of his bone, one uh, com- uh, communing uh, identity between them. The union, therefore, between the husband and the wife is higher than any other union we can have in this world other than our union with Christ, of which it is, of course, an analogy pointing to that. So why, does the, why should the wife obey her husband? Not because he's always right, but because he is uh, the one that the Lord has given to her. And he is the authority who has been put into that particular relationship. The authority, therefore, that he has is an authority that is given to him by Christ. Now, this is not an absolute authority. He cannot, for instance, instruct his wife to do anything that goes against what the Lord has said. The Lord's authority is first in her life and first in his life. And when he begins to rule telling her to do things that the Lord has not said or has, uh, rather I should say, that go against what the Lord has said or tells her not to do things that the Lord has said she should do, then he has become a tyrant. And she must, because her first obedience has to be to her Lord, she must under those circumstances say no. Um, Incidentally, that goes the other way as well. The husband is to love his wife. He's supposed to be willing to lay down his life for her, to be sacrificially involved with her all the time. He needs to be sacrificing himself and his activities and so on in order that she might be sanctified, in order that she might be built up and edified and so on. His life is supposed to be spent for the good of his family, and in particular, for his wife, because that's the fundamental relationship. And incidentally, don't forget that. So many Christians come to the conclusion that their first relationship, their most important relationship, is to their kids. It's not. That relationship to your children, while it's very, very important, and it's supposed to be instructional, and so on, it's a relationship that's meant to to part at some point, to a certain extent, because those kids are supposed to go out and form their own families. They're supposed to leave and cleave. And it's not supposed to be the case that then the mother and the father then continue to command their children and thus rule in that family as well. No, that's supposed to be a new family where we have a new structure. But the relationship between husband and wife is supposed to last for life. It's not supposed to be a bond that's easily broken at all. So... The wife is to be obedient to her husband because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And therefore, an eminency in the relationship is given to the husband. Uh, There is an entitlement to command uh, that he has been given. But, as I said, that subjection does not go above the subjection that God has given. Now, I need to make this point and, and nail it home. There is an unbiblical idea of the subjection of women that is being promulgated within uh, because, unfortunately, we tend to be reactionary creatures. We fall off the horse on one side, then we fall off the horse on the other. The pendulum swings wildly in one direction and then wildly in another. Uh, there has been, uh, in the secular world, a lot of teaching about uh, male superiority, uh, guys like Andrew Tate and so on, um, I, I hope you don't know the name and you're like Andrew who? but I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you know who I'm talking about, unfortunately. Th- this is not Christian subjection. It's not Christian subjugation in any sense. It's not Christian submission. There's nothing godly. There's nothing loving involved in it. It's just will to power. Uh, and because I can do this, I'm going to do this. It's, that's, not, that's not Christianity. That is a, a submission that is not taught within the world. Um, and there is also this this terribly uh, insecure, uh, and I don't know quite how to um, uh, to frame it. But there's there's this. Uh, I was talking with the uh, the church leaders. The uh, the I just grow a beard yesterday. I've got a plaid shirt. You'll do what I say. Um, uh, kind of naive and unqualified uh, way that some Christian guys who are new to the Reformed faith have become tyrants in their own households. Th- this is not what's meant here. There is supposed to be a loving relationship between the husband and the wife. The husband needs to be living sacrificially, putting his interests second to the greater interest of the family. The wife has to be submitting to her husband. That has to happen. Uh, but both of them should be doing so as an act not of, of submission, as though the, you know his power over me is tyrannical and so on. And I, I fear him in a literal sense, but rather... It should be a loving submission because the wife loves Christ. And his willingness to love his wife should be because he loves Christ. Therefore, husbands, love your wives, Paul says. Nourish them. Cherish them. Uh, you do everything that you can to build them up. I, um, I, was, I was talking about, uh, I, I love them. I won't tell you who he, uh, his name, but one of the best pastors I've ever encountered. He always refers to his wife as the queen, my queen, and so on. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's terribly touching to see the way that he loves and he cherishes his wife. He doesn't even have a beard, but he has a, has a, wonderful, uh, a, a wonderful way of dealing with his wife in just this loving, secure, Christ-centered way. Uh, and it's a wonderful example of what a Christian marriage should look like. Um, if, if everybody had a marriage like that, I, I don't even care that they use the, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the schmoopy language in dealing with uh, one another. That's a beautiful thing when you see it. When a husband loves his wife like that, and a wife just naturally submits to her husband because she loves him, and, she, and ultimately they're both doing it because they love Christ so very much. The more we love Christ, you'll find this in every relationship, the more we will love Christ's people regardless of whether we're married to them or whether we go to church with them and so on. It just, it naturally spills over. Our cup overflows in love. Now, there is an object to this love that the husbands have for their wives. It is to be a sanctifying force in them. And note this, it's a peculiar and an exclusive love. Wives submit to your own husbands, not wives submit to every husband. I can't, you know, walk in And for instance, I can't tell Kelly Heifel what to do in her own household. I'm not her husband. I do not have authority in that particular area. And so, too, wives are not called to submit to every husband. They are called to submit to their own husbands. We are called to submit to the authorities above us. Um, You may be a major general in the army, but you don't have a command structure with me involved in it. So, you know, you can give me all the orders you want. Maybe I'll do them, but it's, you know, it's whether or not I want to. There should be... Uh, that, that understanding that we have an exclusive relationship, an exclusive authority relationship, and an exclusive also love relationship. That's something that's been lost. This love that the bridegroom has for the bride should be a, a love that's second only uh, to the love that we have to, for Christ. Your wife or your husband should always be second in your heart. And the person who should be first, obviously, is Christ and the objective of that peculiar and exclusive uh, union that occurs between a husband and a wife that mirrors the relationship that we have between Christ and the church is aimed at something. That is to make her spotless, to sanctify her so that she would be a source of, of delight. The Lord is doing that work in his people day by day. And so too, if we're going to be good husbands and we're going to be as Christ to our wives, then we should be working towards their sanctification as well. It should be the case that their spiritual building up is something that is terribly, terribly important to us. That she would be the bride adorned not just for her husband, but adorned for the ultimate bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is to be that that relationship that is exclusive, the relationship that is sanctifying And a relationship ultimately, and this is one of the keys of marriage. I know I'm using key again. I gave you two, respect and love. But the objective, okay, in marriage and a key to understanding its purpose is that it's designed to make us holy. Marriage is designed to make us holy, not to make us as the first stop on the line happy. There are times when marriage isn't going to be something that is causing tremendous amounts of happiness between two sinners in a sinful world. And yet continuing on in it is the right thing to do. And it will ultimately make both members holy and therefore happy. Uh, Keller makes another good point in the meaning of marriage. I want to give you his quote. He says, does this mean that marriage is not about being happy? It's about being holy? Well, yes and no. As we have seen, that is too stark a contrast. If you understand what holiness is, you come to see that real happiness is on the far side of holiness, not the near side. Holiness gives us new desires and brings old desires into line with one another. So if we want to be happy in marriage, we will accept that marriage is designed to make us holy. If we are holy, truly, then we will be happy, and we can be happy in whatever circumstances we are. Paul, because uh, he was a man who was wholly set apart for the Lord, doing his will and his work, was able to have rejoicing in the fullest sense of the word in a Roman jail, in circumstances that normally people would say this is not a circumstance in which happiness is possible, and yet he was able to be happy because of his particular calling, his being set apart. Now... Therefore, we understand that the husband's calling is the holiness of his wife and to make her happy in that final and perfect sense. It should be the case that your marriage should be happy here on earth and so on, but I- I- there are going to be times when you have to accept that not, you're not going to be necessarily absolutely happy. It's not possible in a fallen world to be happy all the time. And if we are happy all the time, it's usually because we're insane. So that's not, the, uh, that's not the right thing. One of the things that I should say about these verses, though, is there are people who have uh, come to the conclusion that uh, if, uh, if she's spoken of as spotless and without wrinkle and so on, it's possible then uh, for us, the church, to achieve perfection on this side of glory. That is not the case. Uh, Pelagians might think that, Um, and some of the holiness believers might think that and so on, but the the great majority of commentators from Augustine on down to the present time uh, understand that that perfection, that holiness comes in its fullness only when Christ returns. That's when we become perfectly holy, when the, the church is that spotless bride adorned for her husband, but it's not until that point that we will get there. We will be like him as closely as it's possible for mortals to be at that point in time. But husbands, we are to be used in that process of preparing for the return of Christ. It should be the case that we leave our wives better off than when we found them. One of the saddest things will be if we are presenting Christ with a woman we have made bitter and we have made uh, less than holy, that we have derogated from her holiness. Now I've seen that happen unfortunately when uh, a husband marries a pious, or an unpious husband marries a pious wife and, and becomes a drag shoot on her sanctification. That should not be the case. And that often goes the other way as well. Remember that your love for your wife, while it should be a sacrificial love, should not cause you to sacrifice your holiness. Your wife may want you, instead of you know going to, and I know none of the wives here would do this, but instead of going to church on Sunday to go out to a Mother's Day event or something like that, something that she's at the center of instead of Christ. Your love should not be so idolatrous that you would be willing to do something that would go against what Christ instructs. And that is sometimes the case. I have watched, unfortunately, wives pull their husbands out of good churches, strong churches, to go to churches that are weak and that are, are very uh, entertainment-based and, and so on, just to please them and have nagged at him and misused the, you know, the position uh, that they have in order to get him to do something that actually is not spiritually good or edifying. And I've watched husbands say, well, I love her, and I want her to continue to love me, therefore I'm going to do this thing. And I've actually argued with this person, but you know this church doesn't teach X, Y, Z. Yes, I know, but you don't have to live with her. And so on. Brothers, brothers, I, I know this is hard, but there's, when you know that it's what God wants, and when you really know it, when it's, it's what God wants, it's not something that is uh, capable of, of uh, being interpreted differently. The Lord does not want you to go, for instance, to a church that's teaching heresy or a church where y- your family's not going to grow in grace. That is simply not the case. And so if you are being pushed to do that, it's the wrong thing. Christ loves the church. He gives himself for the church. And therefore, husbands are to be sacrificially engaging with their wife, willing to lay down their life if need be. There's another thing that we need to learn from this, that the relationship, this one-flesh relationship that we have, just as there should not be, obviously, idols and other people in between us and Christ. It shouldn't be, I, <laughs> I follow Christ and Buddha and Mohammed and so on. It should be the case that your relationship with your wife is exclusive. And therefore this automatically, even if there wasn't a command against it, would put bigamy, polygamy, adultery, all of those things out of the picture. She is the one you are supposed to have that one flesh relationship with. We don't bring other people into that relationship just as we would not bring an idol into our relationship with Christ. It also means that a voluntary divorce, just because you don't like each other, that is something also that is out of the picture. It should be the case that unless there is adultery or desertion, such that cannot be remedied by church or state, that the relationship, you're still working on it and continuing. It also means that it's something that should be entered into freely. Your marriage should be something that you enter into willingly, covenanting with this person, submitting to them, it should not be the case that marriage is forced upon people against their will. That, uh, and, I'm, and here I am not—I uh, am not making this up. Uh, Charles Hodge, who was by no means a liberal and from the 19th century, notes that it must be entered into freely and cordially by the parties, i.e., with the conviction that the one is suited to the other so that they may complement each other and become one in the scriptural sense of those words. All coercion on the part of parents, therefore, is contrary to the nature of the relation and all marriages of mere convenience are opposed to the design of the institution." So, parents, you can nudge your children in the right direction. But unfortunately, I have seen parents um, nudge their children in the wrong direction as well. They have tried to move them towards people who they thought would be more suitable because of their social status or how much money they had or so on, as opposed to their piety and bearing. What can you do for your kids? You can set a good example for them. You can pray for them. You can talk about good, uh, good objects for marriage and so on but uh, it should be the case that your children are marrying people who are suited to them and whom they honestly love and enter into that relationship with. So Paul says that our conjugal love is something that's close to our taking care of our own bodies. It's something where we are are loving oneself. We hear so much these days about self-care. I'm exercising self-care. Well, Actually, this, the care that he's talking about, the care that we take of the body, is something that we should be exercising when it comes to our wives. In verse 29, he, he says it's natural for a man to take care of his body. You don't hate your flesh and so on. Now, we may wish we had better bodies. There is not a morning, unfortunately, I know this will, this will shock you to the core. There's not a morning that I don't wake up and think to myself, man, I wish I were fit and healthy and young and stuff like that, you know. When you get out of bed and you've got a sudden pain and you're like, uh, as uh, Brian Reagan says, well, I guess that's forever. Um, (laughs) It's not, though, because, of course, in my glorified body, I won't have that pain any longer. But uh, you may wish you were healthier, happier, stronger, I don't know, whatever. But you are who you are, and so you take care of the body you've got. You may wish things about your spouse. You may wish she was... Uh, You know, I I don't know, more beautiful, if that's possible, than she already is. But nonetheless, you're still supposed to love her, take care of her, and tend to her needs constantly, as though she were the best and loveliest creature on the face of the planet, because she is the one that Christ has given to you, and you have that one flesh relationship with with her, which transcends all others. And we are being taught, of course, uh, through that relationship with one another, the relationship between Christ and the believer. He wants us to understand that. So just as Adam and Eve were one flesh and therefore they were united in a way similar to the way that Christ said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and talked about the integral organic union uh, with it, so we are supposed to understand our own relationship to Christ as, quote, a great mystery, a mysterion. It is something hidden. It is something Uh, more than we can possibly understand. One of the reasons why we're given marriage in this sphere is so that we'll be able to understand our union with Christ and have some insight on it by analogy. Uh, But we need to understand that with that use of that word, great mystery, that it's something that is seen afar off not yet realized in its fullness. It's something uh, hidden, something imperfectly revealed, something that lies in the future, something that is incomprehensible at this point in time. In other words, we and when I say incomprehensible, I mean we can't get our hands around it entirely, the believer's relationship to Christ. But it's something greater than we can possibly ever understand in this life, but someday we'll have greater insight as it's revealed. I don't know Christ as well as I will know him in heaven. I know that. Paul makes the point we see here as through a glass darkly. But then, face to face, the day is coming when you will understand these things. And marriage helps us to understand that union in its organic nature. It is the closest thing to that. And therefore, we are to continue on in our marriage remembering that it's supposed to be a reflection of our relationship to Christ to give us greater insight to it, but if that's going to happen, then we as husbands have to again we have to love our wives, and the wife has to see to it that she fears. That's interesting, <laughs> and not in the in the sense of ah! fears her husband because the, the word there is the uh, the word that we get phobia from phobos or phobia. It's uh, a word indicating that that reverent awe that that respect. Um, that one should have for, for Jesus, for instance. You should love Jesus, but you should also have that reverential awe for him. It shouldn't be the case that he is your old matey. He's the almighty. He's the one who rules over us, and so too in marriage there should be a respect and uh, an acknowledgment of that authority. So husbands, what are you being asked to do? You're being asked to love your wives better than any unbeliever could ever love his wife because you know Jesus Christ. Wives, what are you being asked to do? You're being asked to respect your husbands better than any unbelieving woman could respect a husband because she doesn't respect Christ. You're supposed to do these things as unto Jesus. And if you don't do this, then it is not only unlikely that your marriage will succeed, it will not be a Christian marriage If it doesn't have that love and that respect, if there isn't that built into it, it's not a Christian marriage. You may go on for a time, you may have your partnership and so on, but it will never be what Christ intends for you. I want to to give you a quote from uh, Edie. He was a commentator on these verses as well. and He wrote one of the most beautiful passages on the nature of this mystery, the relationship, the respect, the love and so on. And he said this, one peculiarity in this injunction has been usually overlooked. What is instructive on either side is not enforced, but what is necessary to direct and hallow such an instinct is inculcated. The woman loves in deep, undying sympathy, but to teach her how this fondness should know and fill its appropriate sphere, she is commanded to obey and honor. The man, on the other hand, feels that his position is to govern, but to show him what should be the essence and means of his government, he is enjoined to love. Govern with love. Love with respect. These are the things that are, we've lost so much of as a consequence of the fall. But we gradually, we regain them in regeneration and we'll have them perfectly. Especially in that perfect communion we'll have in, in heaven as expressed towards the bridegroom. Remember this, there is one thing that the husband cannot be to his wife, and that is her savior. I mean, we can save her in one sense from, you know, you should be willing to throw yourself in front of a train, a car, a bullet, whatever. You do whatever you can to save the life of your wife. Yes, absolutely. But you can't save her soul. The only one who can do that is Jesus Christ. And therefore, husbands, what should you be doing? You should be pushing, not in the real, you know, sense, but... Doing everything you can to bring, or I shouldn't say pushing, should I? I should say leading. You should be leading your wife to Christ. And if you are not actually seeking Christ yourself, you can't do that effectively. There you're doing do as I say, not what I do. You have to be seeking Jesus yourself. And then saying, come with me, my love. And you, wives, if you do respect your husband, then you need to be encouraging him as much as possible to to take up that role as the pastoral head of your household, to operate as somebody worthy of respect as a Christian leader in that household, especially when it comes to setting an example for you and your children. Let's go before the one who sets before us a perfect example. God, our Father, Lord, there is so much we have to learn about the nature of marriage and our relationship to you. Some of it will be hard, some of it will be difficult to absorb, but I pray that you would help the men here to, to be the best leaders they possibly can be in their marriages, that they would show Christ to their wives, that they would love them sacrificially, that they would remember that one flesh union that's not to be, uh, not to be involved in polygamy, bigamy, adultery, or any other sexual immorality. May it be, O oh Lord, that we devote ourselves to our wives in our love, And may we, O Lord, seek to be able to say to them, follow me as I follow Christ. And that be something worthy of respect. Help wives to submit to their husbands in that, that reverence that they're called to do so. And help us both to love and to respect, not because we are inherently worthy of either thing. We are not. But because we love and we respect Christ. May that be the truth. And we pray this in Jesus' holiness.